High Road Books, a new imprint from University of New Mexico Press, invites you to an online event with Rick Bass to discuss Fortunate Son, selected essays from the Lone Star State. The Twig in San Antonio will host on Thursday, July 8th at 7 p.m. Central Time. To register, visit their website, thetwig.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Do you feel that work is just an exchange of money for labor? Or is it something larger? If you work in the United States, it also provides health care, of course. But many workplaces perpetuate a sense of purpose, that the work is about more than just pay and benefits. Management not only encourages employees to feel that they have a shared set of values and a sense of pride, but also implements a regimen of what, in its most unpleasant forms, could be called forced fun. Workers are expected to sing happy birthday to their bosses in the break room over carefully divided pieces of cake. Their goal is to create a deeper connection to work. And while there's nothing wrong with feeling rewarded by your career, it's something that can be very easily manipulated to benefit the company, such as squashing a unionization attempt. Take Amazon and its mascot, Pecky, as in peculiar, who played a prominent role in the corporate anti-union campaign. In the July issue, Daniel Brooke reports on the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, and how its workers were misled, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally, by the company and the culture it perpetuated. I spoke with Brooke about his piece, which offers some valuable and painful lessons for organizers of all stripes. I wanted to start off by asking, a few days before today when we're recording, the New York Times published a comprehensive report on an Amazon warehouse in New York, JFK 8, it was called. So. What was your initial reaction to the piece? And is there anything that surprised you in what the New York Times found or any parallels or? There was some incredible reporting in that piece from Seattle. And I'd like to give that its due in a second. But it was it was a little strange. I mean, this warehouse has been in New York City since 2018. And this is the, seems to be the first really in-depth look at its HR machine. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess my my first reaction is a little bit like New York Times discovers Staten Island, fifth borough, <laughs> fifth borough located near New York Airport. Intern in Sunset Park says it is visible from his apartment window. Uh, not reachable by subway train. <laughs> boat boat accessibility <laughs> uh, leaves near stock exchange. Um, well, no. What's crazy is that they put they put like on the map. It's like this is its size in relationship to Times Square, and I'm like, who cares? What New Yorker cares about the size relationship to Times Square? Times Square is not a big. It's terrible, but it's not big anyway. Yeah. That's how everything's compared to football fields. So it's, it's 15 football fields. But I guess Times Square <laughs> yeah. is maybe a better. Very reference point for New York. Um, so it was long overdue to to really do an in-depth story about the only warehouse in the five boroughs and, and this giant facility that's been open in Staten Island since 2018. Mm-hmm. And the reporting on the experiences of the workers didn't surprise me at all. I mean, the you know HR managed through algorithm and app with 
you know, very little human touch was exactly what I was finding in Bessemer. There's one phrase that I thought really captured it, which was, you know, employees having to act as their own caseworkers. And in, in Bessemer, in the anti-union campaign, the Amazon kind of spun that as a benefit, saying, you know, instead of having the union be this third party between the managers and the employees, right now you get to be your own caseworker. You get to mm-hmm. you get to go to HR whenever you want and try to work out any issues you're having individually. And that, I mean, that to you or I might sound kind of absurd, but it did, it stuck. I remember one worker I talked to in Bessemer said, instead of unionizing to improve the benefits, if you think the benefits are inadequate, you should go ask for better benefits. I mean, like the idea that this individual employee is going to change the healthcare or dental plan by going to HR is absurd. But but that that was certainly her impression was that that was the system that was in place and that that was doable. The thing that this piece really did that was incredible was get former executives in the Pacific Northwest to go on the record and explain and confirm a lot of what I, you know, what I had suspected and what anyone who's looked into this would suspect all along, which is that the company does not want its warehouse employees to view this as a real career, does not want them to stick around. So one, one issue that comes up, it came up in the piece when one worker challenged it and asked about it in one of the mandatory anti-union meetings they held, is that there are no raises, no scheduled raises at Amazon after, for warehouse workers after 36 months on the job three years on the job. So why? So that's an interesting policy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Why after three years on the job, do you stop getting any scheduled raises? It seems like a company that would do that maybe doesn't want people to stick around much after three years on the job. They make a lot of this career choice program that will pay up to $3,000 in tuition for employees who are going, warehouse employees who are going to school on the side, often to get into careers that don't even have any application at Amazon. I mean, sometimes they're learning to do IT and theoretically they might come back to Amazon, but more often... Or they'll just use Amazon Web Services. Right. They will. If they want to or not. Come back to the company. The monopoly issue we'll get to, I'm sure, later in in the talk. But, um, you know, or healthcare where, you know, of course, Amazon has some cursory onsite healthcare, but, you know, if you're getting a healthcare degree, you're probably going to end up working outside of Amazon. So, they got this confirmed. I mean, they had David Kirk on the record, who was the HR vice president for a year, for, for 17 years, saying that, you know, Bezos viewed a long-term workforce as a, quote, march to mediocrity. He didn't want people to, to stick around and, and work at Amazon long-term in the warehouse. He wanted to sort of get a few good years or months or years out of them and then have them move on. Their joints are going to wear out. It doesn't make sense. Financially, this makes no sense for Mr. Bezos. Exactly. Although he is quoted in the piece addressing shareholders as saying, we need a better vision for how to create, how we create value for employees, a vision for their success, which is, of course, I think, evident in the, the support that you describe in the piece of like, you know, getting outside training. Right. But also... The vision for their success is that they, is that they work at Amazon for six months to three years, you know, and have a good out through maybe career choice, which only costs them $3,000 a, a year in, in tuition. Incidentally, I mean, looking at focusing in on Bessemer, where, you know, many workers mentioned the career choice program. One of the reasons as a Bessemer worker, you might need that $3,000 a year if you want to go back to school for IT or healthcare 
is because Amazon has worked out a tax incentive program to open in Bessemer where they get most of the local tax dollars remitted into their account in exchange for having the facility there. So, you know, Amazon's playing this game where they're kind of underfunding the public sector wherever they do business and then come around and offer this workaround from the underfunded public sector to their workers as a benefit of employment. Right. Quite cynical. Yeah, it's a- quite successful. Yeah. Did you find anything that you had because you you mentioned that some of this stuff is you anticipated it. Well, I, they had real smoking guns. I mean, I, right, I, right. I thought, okay, geez, well, they don't. They have this career choice program. They have something called the offer, where they pay people to quit. Oh, <laughs> they give workers after they've worked a full year, they they give them they work peak the Christmas season, thousand dollars per peak they work to quit. I mean, it, it seemed like these things are engineered to not have a, a long term workforce and to intentionally not make working at Amazon, you know, like working at GM where you'd work, you know, 25 years and out and you have a have a cabin in northern Michigan and a boat and, you know, to make it not that kind of job very intentionally. But to have the former vice president of HR confirm on the record that that was the policy and, you know, one degree of separation, quote, Jeff Bezos saying it was intentional is a tremendous addition to what we know about Amazon. That's tremendous reporting from the New York Times. Right. So this let's say the cloak and dagger aspect of Amazon or, I don't know, the secret algorithm for managing products and for managing warehouse workers. You know, you weren't allowed to go into the warehouse. And so you had to catch a lot of people either in the town or in the parking lot or at local restaurants, which with along with COVID seriously limited how many people you could interview because I'm I'm someone who just gets tired and loves to go straight home after work. And I'm sure there are other people out there who feel that way, especially if they've been working incredibly long hours, mandatory overtime at a Amazon warehouse. And I mean, there are always going to be limits on how much information we can access for a reported piece. But these barriers, coupled with the fact that the act of performing this this incredibly difficult labor is physically and emotionally unique, even for people who perform the same job at the same time, presents kind of this philosophical problem almost of how to give the most holistic, least subjective version of this story. Mm-hmm. And to quote Carrington Byers, the, the Amazon warehouse worker you follow most closely in the piece, there's a side A, B, and C. All you heard was A, you never heard B, and C is the whole truth. So when you were writing this piece, how did you address those restrictions and what sort of considerations did you go in with? And did those considerations kind of change after meeting different warehouse workers or coming up against these restrictions? Yeah, I mean, this was the first real reported piece I did since COVID. And I did it in, on perp- in, intentionally because I knew I could drive to, to Birmingham mm-hmm. from New Orleans where I live rather than fly. And when I started going up there, the first time I went up was in February. It was still, you know, COVID was very much a live issue. As I went, you know, I got these monthly snapshots and things were changing and people were getting their shots uh, to some degree and things were opening up. So when I started, I, I decided I did not want to talk to anyone referred to me by the company or the union. I thought because so many of the reports were being filed from New York, Washington and Seattle on this Alabama warehouse. They were getting overly reliant on workers who were referred by 
the parties. And I knew, you know, with COVID, it was going to be a challenge. Uh, I also knew that there were 6,000 eligible voters. There are so, just so many people who work at the plant. Everyone either works there or knows someone who did or used to work there that it became clear that just hanging out in Bessemer, even with COVID going on, it was going to be doable to find people. The issue you raised about people being tired after work was very real. I mean, my first stop when I got to Bessemer the first time was the Waffle House across the street from the plant. And I was chatting with the waitress and I asked, you know, do you get a lot of folks who work at Amazon come in here? And she said, oh yeah, of course, you know, every time there's a shift change, they pile in and pile out. And I said, are they, are they friendly? And she, she kind of chortled, she said, friendly? No, they're not friendly. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not friendly. They're tired and pissed off and miserable. Like, what kind of stupid question is that? Um, Waitresses will always tell you the truth. They will always tell you the truth. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I did find, as I, as I mentioned, you know, with so many people working in the plant, everyone knew somebody. And I was always getting referred to people. I, I, my one real concern was that I wasn't getting a scientific sample. I actually worked before going in, into journalism. I worked in public opinion polling and political polling. So I know the basics of you can interview a very small subset of a, of a voting group and get a very accurate picture if you have a scientific sample. But getting the scientific sample is very tricky. Um, and with 6,000 people, um, you know, every six people is 0.1% of the eligible voters. So there was no way I was going to get out of the single digits in terms of interviewing people. So I started talking to people and it was remarkable. Everybody, not just friends of friends and family, but it was like everyone, a bartender, a waitress, everyone knew somebody who worked there. Even people in more, more white collar kinds of jobs knew people who worked blue collar jobs at Amazon, which tells you something about sort of the structure of Birmingham's economy. And by the end, my, my, my main worry was that I was talking to so many people who were against the union, even people who you know, say uh, an activist said, you know, pro-union activist that her neighbor worked at Amazon. And then I got in touch with him and he was against the union. I went to an early, they had a pro-union rally in February, the first time I was there. And one of the, one of the officers of the Alabama Young Democrats, which was supporting the rally, put me in touch with an employee who, you know, I assumed would be pro-union because that was the connection and that employee was anti-union. <sighs> Uh, so I began to think, you know, is it possible that there, are, there is more support for the union, but pro-union employees are less likely to talk to me because it's a higher stakes position to take when your you know, right. employer is, is telling you very overtly and covertly that the last thing they want is for anyone to vote for the union. That was always my one reservation. I mean, everyone, when I would come back to New Orleans between trips and I would tell friends or colleagues that I was working on this piece about the Amazon Union election, they would of course ask me what I, you know, do I think it's going to win or lose? And I would say, you know, my reporting suggests that the union is getting its hat handed to them. But the one caveat is, you know, how many of the people who I've approached who don't return my phone calls or who don't respond to me in the parking lot are secretly pro union? I, that that I never, I could never figure out until the votes were counted. Right. And I mean, in another way in which this work is highly subjective is the way in which coworkers interact with each other and you know work in general but in this case some of those interactions between a worker and their manager were literally dictated by the company and maneuvers that just barely skirt by what's legal could you describe 
what these tactics were, or at least the ones that you discovered. And yeah, I mean, just by reading the article, it feels like it was the union's failure was just like death by a thousand cuts because of certain strategies employed by Amazon. Yeah, for a company that is so low touch in its HR, uh, once the union election became something that was on the table, they got high touch in a real, real hurry. There was a tremendous amount of, you know, one-on-one management worker discussion of the union, a labor union avoidance, I guess it would be called, web video, management training video was leaked to YouTube. You can watch it. Um, just look up Amazon union busting video um, on YouTube. We'll put it in the we'll put it in the description of the episode. Yeah, so you can watch it. I mean, and it 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 trains managers on how to go right up to the line of federal labor law without stepping over, and it's 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 unconscionable what what is permitted under federal law. So surveillance and interrogation are not permitted as a union busting tactic, but big caveat if the Surveillance and interrogation began before the union drive was discovered by management. It's pretty much legitimate. So they're, they're, they're coaching managers on if there's a union drive and you start going to the break room and chatting with your workforce, that violates federal labor law. But if you are smart about it and you've been chatting with your workforce in the, in the break room the whole time, that's okay. If you ask a worker about their union sympathies, right off the bat, that could be a violation of federal labor law. But if workers are talking about the union and you just happen to overhear it mm-hmm. and join the conversation, that, you know, that's okay. And there were, there were tons of those types. I mean, some of them, it's being litigated right now. Surely, I think we're safe to say in a plant that large, some of those interactions undoubtedly went like, almost certainly across the line. But it was just very high touch. And employees, for example, were... Uh, they flew in outside consultants and managers just for the union election. So they sort of increased the manager to worker ratio during the union election to kind of monitor things. One worker I talked to, one of these managers kind of befriended him and they began communicating on Snapchat, the social media um, app where those conversations disappear 30 days after they've been created. And this, you know, this manager was in town for the union vote or, for the, the beginnings of the union election, and then went back to New England where he was based, and they stayed in touch on Snapchat. And he would kind of casually ask, like, "What's the vibe at the work at the at the warehouse?" and try to get you know intel on the on on the union election surreptitiously. I, I would think Jesus, and then of course ghosted the the worker the second the union election ended, and then all those chats disappear. Right. Uh, so there was there was it's I got the sense you know again I. I the snap, the chats had disappeared, but I got the sense there was a kind of anti-union industrial espionage going on at the plant throughout the election. And then the other thing is that, you know, because the the company had this kind of high touch inside the plant anti-union campaign and the union did not, it began to feel kind of like an invasion. Like the union was out at the gates, bugging people when they're getting off shift and they want to get home. And the company is you know, as they say in their anti-union, in their union busting management training video, we want to be the one-stop shop for information on unions. And they kind of became the one-stop shop. So they explained all of the labor laws kind of through their prism. So they would, they wouldn't explain to the workers, like the reason the union 
organizers are out of the gates is because we would have them, we are entitled to, according to the Supreme Court, have them arrested if they set, set foot on the property. And we, you know, have cops that, are, that we've rented as private security for the duration of the union election sitting in the parking lot. So, so it just felt like to the workers, it was like, well, why, why is the union like trying to get in here? And why are they, you know, why won't they answer our questions about what they're up to? Uh, and, and that the idea that the, the union was a kind of outside third party rather than the union being the workforce united and, and an internal sort of uprising, which it very much was. I mean, this, this, the union, the, the, the whole campaign got started because a group of workers in the plant contacted the union and wanted to organize. It wasn't like the union decided that their best hope of organizing Amazon's warehouses would be in Bessemer, Alabama. Right. Uh, I mean, you would yeah. imagine if they looked at a map of, of America and they saw their warehouses in Staten Island and Chicago and Minneapolis, and you know, they're not going to pick Birmingham area as their, as their first target. Uh, but it, it very much felt that way to workers, that like, their workplace was being invaded. And, and when someone asked, I mean, one, one worker told me that in their captive audience meeting, someone asked, you know, how did this all start? I mean, there's an answer, there's a knowable answer to how that all started has been fact-checked, you know, is that this African-American worker, Daryl Richardson, Googled who, who organizes Amazon because he had worked, at, he had been a union worker before and he was fed up with the inadequate air conditioning at the plant and the, the time off task measurements of his bathroom breaks and various things. And he called, he got in touch with the union. What was told to the workers in this meeting was, we don't know exactly how this got started, oh. but we think maybe someone got fired and was disgruntled about it. Oh, I mean, the, we don't know how, we're not sure how this started, may or may not make it through fact checking, but you know, then this kind of, the other thing sounds like it's made up out of whole cloth. Right. Yeah. That's, well, as you say, legally, they get so much ground the the company gets so much leeway when it comes to these things and the union as you say is at the gates and i mean even the the thing with the making it seem like you had to vote early before organizers could get to workers the fact that they put the mailbox right on the property and then removed the mailbox after the election was over there are so many little things that are just Again, they're not illegal, but they're just... Well, the mailbox... Quite the mailbox was illegal. That's right. The mailbox quite possibly is illegal. That's right. So, I mean, <laughs> the, I guess my take is we'll get the decision from the National Labor Relations Board one of these days, and I, I would be very surprised if the company is, is not found culpable for, for violating the National Labor Relations Act. But the other thing is, you know, even if they had, even, even in a situation where they hadn't violated the National Labor Relations Act, they maybe could have won the election regardless because of how much leeway they're given, you know, even within it. So this, this YouTube, um, this union busting video, which the company, when we contacted them, says it's important to note that it's from 2019. It's not from 2021. So oh, it's so different, let's, I'm let's sure. note that it's from 2019 <laughs> for, for the audience out there. Yes. It tells managers, you know, you would never, you would never tell employees that the company would close the facility just because they form a union. But you might say that forming a union might affect the efficiency of the operation, which might affect customer satisfaction, which might result in the warehouse closing. So, you know, that, that later statement, um, and you can watch the video and get it word for word, it's also quoted in the piece, 
word for word, that second statement is legal. Yeah. And the first statement is illegal. And for a worker <laughs> hearing those two statements, they pretty much sound like the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, Bessemer is, you know, you said a large labor union would not pick Bessemer as like the catalyst for unionizing Amazon. It obviously came internally. And Bessemer itself, as you describe in the piece, is its history of organized and unorganized labor is so thoroughly tied up in Reconstruction and its legacy. And you you wrote a book about Reconstruction titled The Accident of Color, A Story of Race and Reconstruction, which talks about the role of mixed race Americans in Charleston and New Orleans, which were places that didn't adhere to this Anglo-American rigid one drop notion of race. And I mean, you open the book by describing these two Afro-Frenchmen coming to speak to Lincoln about the Dred Scott decision. One is an engineer. The other guy is a wine merchant. And they're talking to a white man who grew up in a log cabin. Like they're just like they're just so they're just so wildly more refined and sort of impressive. And Lincoln's like, oh, yeah, maybe maybe it is a good idea to to not do this, (laughs) to not take their citizenship away. But, you know. Bessemer itself, you have somewhat of a personal relationship with the area because your father is from Birmingham and Birmingham shared the same state level prohibitions on race that Bessemer did. So, for example, the state only allowed unions with white and black members in 1935. And that was a federal decision. That was not a state decision. So given that connection, it would be interesting to hear how Reconstruction impacted your family in Birmingham and how much it reflects or differs from, say, Carrington Byers' family history in Bessemer. Sure. Yeah. I, in my book, I focused on New Orleans and Charleston because they were so atypical. They had really remarkable, kind of shockingly successful reconstructions initially, including you know, desegregating the New Orleans public schools, desegregating the streetcars in Charleston, things that, that did not happen in most southern cities did happen in those cities. And it was because they had this more complicated and in many ways more honest mm-hmm. conception of race as a continuum rather than a binary. Birmingham area is in some ways the opposite. It, it has the kind of most American of, of racial systems. Uh, and one of the surprises about Birmingham, you know, is that there there was no Birmingham in slavery times, there was no Birmingham in the Civil War. Birmingham was founded in 1871 explicitly as an industrial city. And I think it, it, it makes for a really fascinating case study of how you know, the racial system that came out of Reconstruction was imposed, especially you know, in labor relations. Birmingham ends up you know, with an incredibly strict sort of one-drop rule racial division. In the early 20th century, it's the blackest city in America also the most segregated. I would say those two facts are deeply interrelated. The concept of of the demographic threat to white supremacy was greatest in Birmingham because it was so heavily African-American that segregation was imposed in in its most rigid structure. You know, my, my family in Birmingham does not go back to Reconstruction. My grandparents were European uh, Russian Jewish immigrants who they ended up in Birmingham in the depression and my, my father was born and raised there and had, a, I guess, a sort of an interesting, a racially interesting experience of being kind of legally white, but not 
exactly socially white, but certainly one the sort of economic benefits of being legally white. He graduated from the University of Alabama when it was an all-white institution. Carrington's family history and reconstruction is quite fascinating as well, which didn't it did not end up in the piece, but we were he gave me a tour of his hometown and Carrington recently became close with a white Alabamian who was kind of a history buff mm. and turned Carrington on to genealogy and history. And Carrington begun to piece together a tremendous amount of information about his family's past. So he's uh, like a lot of Amazon workers, actually, he commutes an hour each way to the Amazon facility. And that's, that's not atypical. These are often with their guarantee of a $15 minimum wage in places like Alabama, where that's twice the state minimum often do commute long distances. I think that's baked in. Again, the New York Times would have to have a source in Seattle confirm this, but they do these 12-hour shifts or 10-hour shifts. They do these ultra-long shifts, but they only do them three or four days a week. So I think it makes it more viable to have a long commute because you're not doing it five days a week. You're doing it three days a week or four days a week. Right. So he commutes an hour each way from Asheville, Alabama, which is the county seat of St. Clair County. Population of the town is under 3,000. You don't want to say anything's a cliche, but kind of when the shoe fits, um, <laughs> we went down to the courthouse in the middle of town uh, with the Confederate monument and the, mm-hmm. you know, all of this. And Carrington, you know, began explaining that the town it's more or less half black and half white. And he's he and his family he's related to basically all of the black side of town, and of course secretly related to all the white side of town, but nobody wants to talk about it. Uh, yeah. Um, and we went to what Carrington called the Confederate House. That's not its official name has a hyphen, it's in his house. It's the home of the the preserved home, you know, with the historical society, preserved home of the most illustrious Confederate veteran of the town. And Carrington's story, as is what he's done genealogically, is that he, he is descended from this Confederate officer and his enslaved housemaid. And when they had the, the kid, they either it was decreed or they decided you know, how a, a man and, and, a, and a mistress make a decision about what to do with the child, especially when there's the woman is enslaved. And, you know, all of this is like, there's no good answer to how this was done. But anyway, it's the, the decision was made to send the kid away, to kind of hide the scandal mm. by sending the, the child away from the town. Uh, and this child returned as an adult woman and settled in the town. And Carrington traces his lineage to this individual. So then when, you know, when Black Lives Matter bubbled up and they, there were protests to take down the Confederate statue at the courthouse, Carrington had very, was quite conflicted about the whole thing. He was very adamant that he did not like that activists from Birmingham and Gadsden, which is a smaller city in Alabama, kind of on the other side of this tiny town, kind of converged on his town, demanding that the statue be taken down. He says, you know, it's he traces his lineage, you know, to an enslaved woman and this Confederate officer. Um, and he, he was, I guess he just had a much more complex take on, on things. And it, it left him, you know, kind of at a loss. I mean, I joked, you know, you could join, the, you could join the sons of the of Confederate veterans. And he, he kind of sassily said to me, well, I don't think they'd have me. <laughs> and I, and I, I said, I know, I don't think they'd have you one bit. And we kind of, we had a little bit of a laugh about that. Uh, right. But but when Black Lives Matter became involved with the endorsing the union campaign, he was already kind of conflicted about Black Lives Matter and he didn't, that didn't sway him. But the other thing he said about that was that he, 
he didn't think the fact that, that the warehouse is overwhelmingly black. He just said, well, look, it's in Bessemer. Bessemer is a black town. Of course, it's black. It's not it's not like Amazon is engineering it that way. And I thought that was spoke volumes about sort of the, the power of the company to sort of shape reality. Like, right. It's not like the people in Seattle, when they put this warehouse down, didn't realize Bessemer is overwhelmingly black. The New York Times article had finally had some hard data, although it's from 2019 um, and Amazon wouldn't release anything more current about the racial demographics of the lowest level warehouse workers. And they're actually, they're a plurality black, like in America. So, I mean, America is, has about four and a half white people for every black person, but Amazon has more black employees than white employees at its lowest level. And how does something like that happen? That That's really, you know, if I could ask Jeff Bezos a question, that would be, that would probably be my, my first one. Well, if I were a racist, I would say it's good that they're employing so many black people. Right. I mean, <laughs> Therefore, the company can't be racist. Right. Exactly. Jeff Bezos might say it's out of his support for Black Lives Matter. He, he thought he could employ a disproportionate percentage of African-American employees at the lowest ranks of yeah. the company. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Or not. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I mean, obviously, uh, yeah. I mean, reconstruction is, I think it, it is something that so clearly shapes the present, not just because of, you know, Americans' collective understanding of race, but because these things were codified into federal and state laws. And because, again, we're moving forward from the past and like, you know, the separate but equal that whole idea and all these again the the demographics of these these cities and the fact that so many black people maybe wanted to leave but then could not financially get out and not that things in the north would necessarily be better either and so it, it it's just such a important period of history and i'm i really enjoyed your book because it did give a lot of perspective on this period of time that Again, it, there's so much there, but and there was a lot of there were a lot of achievements that were eventually rolled back, but a lot of it's very hard to find because information about it was intentionally destroyed, and then there was also just so much violence that was also a form of destroying the accomplishments of black freedmen and women. Yeah, the the, the labor model, you know, the southern low wage labor model absolutely grows out of this period, and it's you know by racializing the workforce well, taking away the rights of African-Americans permitted companies to pay them as, as low wages as, as possible. You know, in addition, there was a convict lease system. I mean, in Alabama, 90% of the convict lease inmates uh, were African-American. Even It was even more African-American than the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that playing the, the two groups, the poor whites and the African-Americans off against each other was always the secret to union busting in the South. And I, I initially, before I went to the, did on-site reporting, I, I imagined, you know, white workers maybe might be hostile to the union and black workers might be supportive. And then, you know, as it turned out, you know, the, there weren't enough white workers in the plant to be particularly important to an election there. It surprised me. But the idea that for African-American workers in Birmingham, this job that as arduous as it is, pays $15 an hour and offers healthcare is, you know, worth commuting an hour each way for or work a 12-hour overnight shift for absolutely grows out of the of the labor model of the South, which is, of course, based on on racialization of the workforce. 
Yeah. And something that as the rest of the country diversifies, you know, is kind of metastasizing and is spreading. It happens in more and more places as the workforce diversifies, you, you get, you know, employers will seize on the ten- tensions, racial tensions between the mm-hmm. two groups or kind of define certain jobs as, uh, well, that's work for African-Americans or that work, that's work for Hispanics or that's work for Burmese immigrants or what, what have you. Yeah. I mean, I know a couple of weeks ago there was a, I don't want to say a big kerfuffle, but something that was public knowledge was reported on and people seized on it. The Veiled Prophet organization and the star of Kimmy Schmidt was uh, crowned the queen of their ball. And it was sort of a typical organization from the Reconstruction era where it was a group of wealthy white businessmen who got together and, you know, sort of inventing Irish myths and, and sort of um, like the clan, but not the clan, uh, sort of inventing these these rituals and these costumed balls where, you know, people's faces are obscured. They work to, as you say, to prevent the mobilization of black workers and poor white workers and to ensure the white workers sort of got the double pay in the notion of their racial superiority. Mm-hmm. And when when that story broke or when it became more known, it was frustrating because it was presented as if this is like an anomaly. And there were organizations, secret and not so secret, throughout the whole South that were geared towards this, to, to terrorizing Black people and also to preserving the economic social order that, that existed during slavery, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think what's, what's sort of interesting about Birmingham and kind of lost in its discussion is that you know, because it's founded in 1871, it like doesn't, like, you know, if you stand in the middle of Birmingham and have a mile radius around you, and you stand at the New York Stock Exchange and have a mile radius around you. There are more enslaved people in the, around the New York Stock Exchange than there were around the center of Birmingham. And yet Birmingham kind of psychologically is kind of reenacting slavery every day in a certain sense. Yes. And that's sort of where we are as a country. Like mm-hmm. the most compelling fact about Birmingham is that there was no slavery there. And that's like sort of that's kind of where we are as a country. Is that like, I mean, that's what my book gets into is like, how does the racial system get put in place that it can transcend the abolition of slavery in a different way and in in a more hermetic way than any other New World society that abolished slavery. You know, it kept held onto a racial system. Right. And one of the people you speak to who knows people who worked at the plant, works at a sneaker store called Memory Lane, which I love, Ananias Ware, Mm -hmm. he said that, you know, the people there, quote, they feel like they're slaving. And that was just such a it's the elephant in the room, but it's, again, it's this legacy that people don't necessarily, it's just such a part of society that it's almost invisible. But then you remind people of it. And then I, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it can possibly provide a way forward, but it's also just sort of like this ideology that has such power over everything. Yeah. I, of course I quote it because I thought it was an incredibly powerful quote. And also, you know, one of those quotes where it's like, if it was in a novel, I know that's a cliche. (laughs) So, you know, and it comes in the piece after Congressman Jamal Bowman gives a speech in support of the union against the company where he says that they've created a quote, plantation work environment. Right. Um, I just thought the, you know, it's one thing for this Congressman to fly down for a morning 
and say, there's a plantation work environment at this plant. And it's another thing for someone who worked at the plant to, you know, unprompted make a slavery analogy, you know, within three minutes of talking to this guy. Yeah. And Jamal Bowman was one of several, I guess you could say, celebrity politicians. I mean, also, it's just like Jamal Bowman is great, but he's still a freshman year congressman. Uh, You know, Bernie Sanders was there. Danny Glover was there. Not Donald Glover, Danny Glover, who produces the films. Great man. A lot of people flew in trying to gin up support for the union. And I would say it fed into this media narrative that this battle was won. And there were things that were leaked. You know, Amazon went on this weird sort of Twitter campaign of being like, you don't really believe the peeing in bottles things, do you? And it made it seem like this deal was done. But then on the ground, it was a totally different story. So, I mean, because you were there at multiple points in the unionization attempt, to what extent do you feel like the media overhyped the victory? And do you feel like there was perhaps a lack of, I don't want to say it was a failure of the union, but because of like this media image, you know, that was sort of created by a tech company? Yeah, I mean, the, the media certainly got out of a, out ahead of its own skis on on this story. And I, you know, it got in my head a little bit too. I kept thinking I would drive up to Birmingham, to Bessemer, and I would do my reporting. And then I would come back to New Orleans and mostly follow, follow the story to a great extent, like everyone else, you know, on the internet. And then I was like, well, the next time I go to Bessemer, it's going to be different. <laughs> you know, the needle's just going to move the needle. And it, and it never, and then when I would get there, I was like, no, it's not, not really what's happening. I think with the celebrity endorsers, one thing to keep in mind is the timing. That campaign got underway way late. Like, Joe Biden yes. put out his statement on February 28th, which was three weeks into the voting period, during which the company had been sending all of its workers text messages to be done by 3-1, vote by 3-1. So he, he put out the statement five hours before 3-1. <laughs> so a lot of votes were already locked in. The other thing is all of the coverage over who did endorse, and this is the kind of phantom coverage of who didn't endorse. So Danny Glover is a good example of this. A lot of retired celebrities. I mean, I don't think, I mean, Danny Glover, you know, hasn't made movies. He's, hey, he's, 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 he's producing. He's producing. He's producing yeah. some really, truly great films. Okay. Check him out on IMDb if you haven't heard of this guy. <laughs> there was a pro, the Danny Glover aside, there was an issue, the union was having an issue where a lot of older celebrities were eager to speak out in favor of the union and a lot of younger, more current celebrities we're not. And the workforce skews very young. And that was that was an issue. And I know for a fact, I mean, one, this, I can't reveal who it was, but one sort of major hip hop slash Hollywood celebrity with millions mm. of Twitter followers had mm. just in contract with Amazon Studios mm. and confided in a friend who I guess didn't confide that well because she told me, um, <laughs> you know, was wondering, you know, what do I do? Like, I, I want to support these African-American workers in, in Bessemer, but I just think this contract with Amazon and I don't. And, and the thing about Amazon being a monopoly is it's just they're in everybody's pocket. Right. You know, I, I, I hope they don't do this, but like if I would imagine Amazon sells more of my books than any other retailer because they sell more of everyone's books than any other retailer. And if they want right. to remove my books. From their platform, like they're going to do me financial damage. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's just they're in everybody's pocket. And it's, it makes it very scary for anyone to, to speak out against them. So it's remarkable that they did, you know, get 
such an outpouring. That said, there, you know, one of Jane McAlevey's objections published in The Nation was that there was too much focus on national level celebrities and not enough focus on local leaders in terms of getting endorsements. And I, I, you know, I think that is the case. I, at one point in, in March, midway through the campaign, I got to kind of be a fly on the wall at the Birmingham Black Lives Matter chapter's sort of planning session. And they were trying to reach out to the African-American faith community to try to kind of get them on board with unionization. And, and they were kind of like, you know, during the civil rights movement, they like that community, they were the leaders. Right. They were not the followers. They were out front and then the community followed. And this time around, it seems like Black Lives Matter is, is, is doing all it can to kind of get them to come out already again, weeks into the whole thing. And, and then the union, you know, did not, you know, was saying publicly that this is part of the Black Lives Matter movement. And then when I interviewed the co-chair of Birmingham Black Lives Matter, I asked when he heard about the organizing drive at Amazon, and he said in early February. So you know, the, the union in New York was already saying, you know, we're part of the Black Lives Matter movement, while the local Black Lives Matter movement chapter hasn't been like looped in or contacted or anything. So there was, there was that, there, and there was a lot of like rebuilding, kind of rebuilding the apparatus. And I think, you know, going forward, that'll be powerful. The Black Lives Matter Birmingham group took out a billboard over a highway on, you know, near the plant with a Martin Luther King quote in favor of the labor movement. You know, if you were finding, if you wanted to put a Martin Luther King quote in favor of organized labor on a billboard, you could spend three weeks looking up all of the hundreds and hundreds of Martin Luther King quotes in favor of organized labor to choose from. But, but that story is, is, is very poorly known. I mean, I think any, any public school child in Birmingham today knows who Martin Luther King is, and probably very few of them have any idea of his support for the labor movement. That has to be rebuilt. And that is finally is being rebuilt, but it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress. And it was certainly too little too late in this instance. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, this is sort of a result of sanitized history because, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. was very opposed to the Vietnam War. And yeah. for most of his career, he held what would be considered pretty radical views. And so for like, wasn't there like a Super Bowl commercial where his like his some some speech of his was used for like a car commercial or something? It was just something totally absurd and just inappropriate. And it's like this man was I mean, he didn't call himself a socialist, but he certainly had serious critiques of capitalism. At times I think he did. Oh, okay. And and I mean to to say he literally died on the picket line with black workers striking in Memphis is an exaggeration because he was at his hotel ready to go to the picket line. Right. That's why he was in Memphis. Right. And this kind of point, you know, we're talking about this generational gap in terms of knowledge, you know, how history is thought, but also how younger celebrities were kind of afraid to voice their support because Amazon, you know, they're an independent film producer too. Like um, they're they're everywhere and and then this generational gap exists with the workers too because some of the younger workers just put their faith into this company that is just so obviously greedy and it's and at times the views they espouse about the company are very shocking and even like Carrington was union sympathetic kind of rationalizes away the surveillance that he was subjected to after seeming to support the union. Do you think there's a way to 
counteract or eliminate this notion that the company has its employees' best interests at heart and a way to kind of reach young people and not just sort of be like, oh, it's on Twitter. It's fine. They're doing memes about Pecky or whatever. Like, you know, what is the way around this trust? Because it's it's it, it seems like it was, as you say, the majority of the workers were younger. Yeah, it felt often like the like there was a national media narrative that we who work in the national media or just, you know, our friends and family, if they're of similar educational class background, you know, kind of take in that we kind of take for granted that it's just not it just doesn't have the reach. It, it didn't seem to be what, you know, these these Amazon workers weren't going home and watching MSNBC. They weren't reading the New York Times. I mean, the New York Times years ago and cited and reprinted in fulfillment um, Alec McGillis's outstanding book about Amazon and, and regional inequality. The New York Times, when HQ2 came out, they gave some boneheaded PR version for Amazon, gave the direct quote, nowhere did Amazon say HQ2 was a project designed to help communities in need. That's a direct quote. So like Amazon has told the New York Times that it's like helping communities in need <laughs> is not part of its agenda. Right. But then internally in Bessemer, in these mandatory captive anti-union meetings, and in a million little ways, they're telling the workforce, you know, well, we, you know, Amazon came to Bessemer because it's a community in need. It's a, you know, it's overwhelmingly African American, has high poverty, has an unconscionably high incarceration rate, and that's why we're here. And it's just like there are kind of two, there's sort of alter alternative facts, and the for most workers in the plant, you know, the, what their managers are telling them, well, they're they're actually hearing. They, the management knows they're hearing that. The fact that the company gave a contradictory quote to the New York Times that's in Alec McGillis's new FSG book is just not, doesn't seem to be registering. Now that said, the, you know, the belated and sort of too little too late, but still significant celebrity endorser campaign or black church campaign locally, Black Lives Matter campaign locally, all those things I think really can move the needle. And, you know, part of that Carrington quote that you read is he said, you know, yeah, there's A, B, and C. Like you've heard A, which is the, what the, comp the company line. Then there's B when you went and heard Jamal Bowman speak and give a totally different. And then there's C, which is like the truth, which is somewhere in between. And the idea that there's a B to the A came so late. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, you know, that's sort of an important piece. If there is sort of a countervailing narrative, which I think there is now, you know, when Joe Biden, when the president says something, it, it Everyone in that plant know Joe Biden said something in favor of the union. Everyone knows that. Right. And that that's a kind of, there's a sort of new normal now uh, that I think is, is important. And I think, you know, if there's going to be unionization, Amazon's going to need to be built upon. Exactly. And I mean, we were sort of talking about this earlier. I mean, I remember in the 90s, there was this real anti-Walmart posture that, you know, centrist to left-leaning people would be like, oh, you can't, you have to boycott Walmart. You know, they're, they're abusive labor practices. They have, you know, clothing made at sweatshops. They do this, they bust unions, et cetera, et cetera. And Amazon does the exact same thing. It's taken over even more of the retailer market or retail period and, you know, has abusive labor practices and the rigid schedules and all this stuff. And yet so many consumers who say this is terrible continue to buy things from Amazon because either they can rationalize it away 
or it's the only place where they can buy certain things they can't find, you know, locally or at other online retailers. So to what extent do you think that Amazon's increasing dominance of retail will make future anti-Amazon actions impossible? Because they're getting people's money. I mean, they, the amount which Amazon grew during the pandemic could have really helped a lot of people out, but instead, I don't know, Jeff Bezos has to go to space. So what needs to happen for consumers to stop relying so much on this company? Yeah, I mean, they're, you're, you're right to kind of point towards a, a certain hypocrisy that people who were more than happy to boycott Walmart in the 1990s are you know, now kind of hemming and hawing about whether to boycott Whole Foods. A lot right. probably just didn't like shopping at Walmart anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that, you know, that, 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 that is real. But on a more structural level, the problem is monopoly. Um, it's hard to kind of maneuver out of Amazon you know, in shopping online. I mean, they own, when you look into what they own, you often find you're shopping at Amazon when you don't even realize you're shopping at Amazon like ABE Books, which is a used book online retailer that I use a lot for out-of-print things. Mm -hmm. That was bought by Amazon. Um, you know, Goodreads is owned by Amazon. Zappos is owned by Amazon. Right. So you're often shopping at Amazon when you don't even realize it. And, and that's something, its market power, I, I think, will have to be addressed through federal regulation. Um, there's, there's, and there is hope on that front. I mean, the, there was a, there's a new bill that was recently re introduced in the House to stop Amazon from kind of promoting its own goods on its sites, you know, its, its in-house brands over, you know, more competitively priced competitors, or just to outright ban it from running the platform, you know, being a competitor in the market for which it runs the platform. There's also, you know, the new head of the FTC, Lena Khan, her claim to fame is she wrote a law review article in 2017 called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, explaining why even if it has low prices, it still needs to be strenuously regulated and likely broken up. And she, you know, she just not only was appointed to the FTC and made the chair, but she passed the Senate 69 to 28 with 21 Republican votes. So, you know, one of the only bipartisan things that's emerging right now, bipartisan consensus in Washington is that, you know, this kind of monopoly power that Amazon wields is a, is a problem. So that's, that's encouraging as well. And then from a, labor organizing perspective, I mean, it, it, it would seem that, you know, reform to labor or federal labor laws are long overdue. And there is something called the, the PRO Act, protecting the right to organize, that's passed the House and is sitting in the Senate and sort of dealing with filibuster. I mean, remind me if you've heard this one before, dealing with <laughs> filibuster and or Joe Manchin, Christian Cinema issues. But that would quite dramatically level the playing field on labor organizing. One of the things that it would do is take these captive audience meetings where workers are required to attend anti-union sessions with their managers on the clock and, and make and make those optional, um, not make make it impossible to turn going to an anti-union meeting uh, into a condition of employment. Right. Yeah. I mean, if they're so worried about the packages getting there, why do they make them attend this stupid meeting? Oh, wait, because it impacts their bottom line way more than when the package arrives. <laughs> yeah. And that's the kind of thing that's like, you know, the way, a journal, the way journalists are kind of trained to think is just, yeah, of course you're going to go there. And it's, I just don't know that that's not the impulse of everyone. I mean, there was one quote, I thought real jaw-dropping quote I got, but ends one section is, I just don't know why Amazon would lie to their employees. I don't oh, understand I that. That's I from one of, the, one of the workers. And, I, and I, when I reported that, I told a family member about it. And she said, like, I just don't know. 
I don't know how someone goes through the world with that outlook. Like she said, I, you know, I go through the world with the outlook of like, some people are probably trying to cheat me and I should be on guard a little yeah. bit. Uh, and some people, you know, phrase things that are in their interest as being in my interest. And, and that, you know, that is not everybody's framework. And I think to the extent that, you know, the labor unions become more part of the cultural conversation and more part of the political conversation and, you know, the president weighs in and, and Marco Rubio weighs in and Stacey Abrams weighs in and ideally, you know, your local pastor weighs in too. Right. Or your civic group or Black Lives Matter in your town. You know, that may reshape things. But people are kind of not most people are not like inherently skeptical and they're certainly not inherently organized. Um that that all takes work. Yeah. No, it's true. And I mean, I feel like again, because of an over reliance on, you know, people treat social media like a mirror. And that this is reflecting exactly what the majority of Americans are saying. And it's like, no, this is a platform used by a very small percentage of people. And you probably shouldn't put the majority of your efforts toward like tweeting things or even, you know, that was another way in which Amazon handled things, as I said before, where they made it seem like this campaign was a total joke and that it was in the bag. Yeah. And then there was less effort put toward. Because people, I mean, I don't know, if you're working in a warehouse and you're peeing in a bottle and you have to keep moving to get these packages where they need to go, you're not checking Twitter for like the latest memes. Like you're just trying to get by or checking Facebook and being like, oh, yeah, maybe I'm anti-vax now. Like that's it's ludicrous. But people don't live this way. And this division between I mean, I realize I should have gotten to this. A righteous uh, <laughs> digression earlier is that the media is it's increasingly existing in its own sphere, mm-hmm. and it's not it's not even just different from what people believe. It's just not even it's not even touching people's lives. Like there's no way for people to even see this because they don't have the time and they don't care. Because I don't know, maybe they shouldn't have backed the Iraq War so hard, and they would have more credibility. Like there are so many reasons. For all of this. Yeah, I mean, this this was certainly, you know, Twitter isn't real life, case study 3,236. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the, the thing that really, that that scared me most following this on, on Twitter, and I, I honestly, I'm very new to Twitter, and partially I signed up kind of, I started following all of these labor and Birmingham stuff to try to stay informed, kind of due diligence as a reporter. And the thing that really scared me was that it felt like the echo chamber had become reality proofed yes yes there was one reporter um sort of independent labor reporter based in pittsburgh and i don't you know there's this world and for some you know he's disliked by a lot of the other labor reporters and i don't know the backstory and maybe he deserves to be disliked or not i don't know (laughs) but he he went to the parking lot of the uh in bessemer and he started you know asking random workers about the union and taking videos and uploading them this was very late in the campaign and he was hearing all of the same things I'd heard in the parking lot. All of, you know, this, these, you know, anti-union talking points that came out of the captive audience meetings that like, you know, you could kind of debunk within two minutes of talking to someone, but that, I mean, that's not the reporter's job. And he was getting beaten up as a kind of like, ye of little faith. You don't believe that the union's pulling this out and who are you? You just came down to Bessemer and took a few videos of union skeptics and you're carpet bagger. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it just it just felt like like not only is this pro labor kind of Twitter community misinformed about reality in Bessemer, 
It's like when someone goes to Bessemer and does the work and tries to show them what's really going on, he gets pilloried for it. Yeah. And that, that was just, yeah, like that, that's not serving anyone. <laughs> no, no, I know. It is, again, it's one of the more worrying aspects of reality, but that's, that's a subject for another time. But again, we all know this, right? Just like we all know that Amazon is bad. But what's next in your estimation? Do you read Bessemer as the death knell for union organizing at Amazon? No, no, no. absolutely. I mean, absolutely not. Well, that's, that's great. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it certainly, it, it demonstrated the, the need to, to pass the PRO Act. Um, to reform the process. Uh, this was the, the way this election was conducted. The legal aspects of the way this election was conducted were so egregious that they, you know, that in itself deserves to be reformed. And then we'll find out whether, you know, what the NLRB rules. But uh, the thing is, even if they rule that the company broke federal labor law, which I think is very likely they will rule, you know, the penalties are just a slap on the wrist, particularly for a company like Amazon, but honestly, almost for any any company. I mean, the, if you fire someone for labor organizing, which is not alleged in this case, but is alleged on Staten Island and, and many places all over the country, if that claim is found to be credible, the penalty is that the worker is reinstated and given back pay for the period they didn't work minus any earnings they made in the meantime. You know, which, you know, that's even like a, a, a mom and pop operation. You know, a factory with 20 employees could probably view that as a cost of doing business. Certainly Amazon's not going to be deterred by those types of penalties. Yeah. The other thing is more is more cultural and political. The fact that, you know, Marco Rubio is on the record supporting Amazon workers organizing and Joe Biden and, you know, all of this all of this stuff I think and the celebrities, I think all of that matters. And and that there was a billboard over Birmingham showing that Martin Luther King was pro union. And that's like irrefutable it's like the kind of thing where there's no way to refute that. That's not a debatable like Martin Luther King, I mean, he had some quibbles with certain unions in Philadelphia and that didn't have any African-Americans in their apprentice programs, et cetera. But the idea that, you know, Martin Luther King was strongly pro-union is a fact and there's no way to overcome that. The only way to overcome that is by not talking about it, which is what's been happening in this country for 50 years. Right. So those those types of things are, are like can't unring the bell situations. And I think, you know, moving forward, it, this is only going to spread. The one thing, you know, in the McAlevey piece, she said the union was sort of using turnover as an excuse that it's hard to organize because there's such high turnover. And, you know, there is, that, is, that was a problem. That, and the New York Times article confirmed finally something, you know, I'd heard as... Sort of as a rumor, which is that Amazon loses 3% of its hourly associates per week, which comes out to 150% turnover per year. I mean, that means in a year, they go through more people than their entire workforce. And that is a barrier to organizing. I mean, I spoke to so many workers. A lot of the pro-union workers I spoke to had quit. They're like, well, if I was still there, I would vote for the union. But I quit because it was so <sighs> terrible. Yeah. It was so terrible, I couldn't stick around to vote for the union. That I heard that multiple times. That being the case, I was surprised that the, the union did not try to make some lemonade with that. Jane McAlevey said, you know, there were no public demonstrations of support for the union in, the, in that social science world are called majority public structure tests, where you do something publicly uh, in the in the workplace or in the parking lot, or you know, you wear a union t-shirt, which is legally protected. They can't fire you for that. Or you have some kind of labor action 
they were sending out these things, you know, some individuals in the plant have tested positive for COVID, but they wouldn't say how many individuals are more worrisome. They wouldn't say where in the warehouse they work. So people couldn't figure out, you know, it's a big warehouse. If someone on 10 football fields away tested positive for COVID, that's not as scary as if you're the next door neighbor on your shift tested positive for COVID. You know, if they said, we're going to, you know, we're not, we're going to sit down for 10 minutes till they start telling us who tests positive for COVID instead of just somebody. Those types of actions didn't happen. And, and that, you know, Jane McAlevey and other organizers say that's one of the problems. You know, there, you might be, there might have been a way where the union could have sussed out within the workforce who was about to, about to quit and created a kind of dead-ender strike force mm-hmm. that could have done, you know, there it's like, I'm already quitting. I hate this place. I'm never working here again. Yeah. So I'm going to go down fighting. And those people could have taken all kinds of actions because, you know, what's the worst thing they can do? Fire you. Well, you're already about to quit. And it doesn't it didn't seem like there was anything really done with those people. And those people generally just quit, you know, gave notice or quit with and just went out without a peep. And they could have maybe been, you know, which hurt the union drive, uh, but maybe they could have been mobilized in some way. Yeah. I mean that's that's always the struggle, right? With toxic workplaces where it's like, I could stick around and try to make this better, or I can't really take this anymore. I just need to leave. And what you're proposing where there could have been just like the I don't give a fuck section of pro-union people who could have achieved things is, I think, an important thing to keep in mind in any toxic workplace. Because, you know, again, it's 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 only going to get worse unless people gather together and really try to make it better. So thank you so much. This was really excellent talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate the interest. Hope it does some good. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 